Welcome to another episode of Geography Now from the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. We are a charity, learning society and professional body and reach millions of people each year through our work in advancing geography and supporting geographers. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to geographers about the work that they're doing, topics they're passionate about and opinions they have about the world around us. Today's guest is the author Ben Wilson, and joining us to talk about what he calls humankind's greatest invention, the city, and our increasing reliance as a species on the urban areas of our planet. Thank you for joining us today, Ben. Can you start by talking to us a bit about why you first became so interested in the history of the city and your new book? Well, it really came out of my last book, which is called Heyday, The Making of the Modern World, which was set in the 1850s. And it was about movements of people around the world, new technologies and great global shift as a result of those things, specifically in the 1850s, when I saw the sort of the world beginning to speed up and people come together. And I became interested in cities like Shanghai, which kind of emerge out of the Opium Wars over the Western sort of intrusion into China. And I saw that as a place where the world was beginning to come together in very strange and peculiar ways. And following on from that sort of history of Shanghai, it's had a very interesting story to tell, sort of microcosm of the modern world, where you could tell a history of the world from a place, which I thought was a fascinating way to tell history. So in sort of researching that idea, I kind of thought, well, what is a global city? How do cities work? How do they function? Which is a subject that's always come up, but as I sort of traced how would I tell the story about Shanghai, it became a story about what is a global city. And then it became a, a question of how do people live in cities? And then a question of how you could tell the history of the world, specifically with the prism being cities, which I thought was a thing that was taken for granted, not just what cities have done in terms of our progress, but how do cities shape us? How do we shape them? How do we survive them? So these questions became bigger and bigger and bigger and the book became bigger and it turned into what it is now, uh, Metropolis, which is a history of cities and urbanisation, a bit of global history that's told by the impact of cities on a global scale in terms of their networks and things like that. So what became a kind of microcosm became a, a much bigger book. So something that you speak a lot about in the book is that today's cities are a product of the past and urban areas have some incredible similarities to the cities that came before them. So what do you think today's cities have learnt from the cities of the past and what lessons could they apply? Well, I guess they're all products of the past. I mean, the part of the book is to show them as very complex adaptive systems that evolve over time. To some extent, they don't learn from the past. I think there's a sort of big theme of the book is almost constantly trying to reinvent the city and to impose a kind of ideal city from the top. But cities are constantly evolving through history, through time. Their strengths come from their incremental growth, their spontaneity, the kind of cracks in the concrete almost that let through spontaneous growth. So I think sometimes cities don't learn from the past, but it's sort of the positives, the kind of the deep legacy from the past, which gives them their vitality is often expressed in strange ways. But one thing I, I might highlight would be public space, which goes back probably to the Greek polis and the idea of a place where citizens, members of the city, whoever they are, can come together. So I think radical public space came out of the Greek world and it's something that perhaps we're losing as cities become almost like malls where public space is privatised, heavily surveilled, policed and things like that. So that's one aspect I think is really important where cities can look back to the deeper past and see what made them vital, inspiring, interesting places, which was this public space. And things like during the Occupy movements or the Vagazi Park in Istanbul or the Arab Spring in places like Cairo was this sort of reclaiming of urban 
public space. It was almost a radical idea to recolonize and use them for debate and discussion and protest and uh, revolutionary activity almost. But as cities have become sanitized, we kind of lost that sense of public space. Another thing which I emphasize in the book, and this is very pertinent to, to today, is the ideas of cities as sociable spaces. That is best expressed is the idea of the street as a place of communal activity and spontaneous, unplanned interactions between people, which make cities not only pleasurable places to live, but give them that dynamism and energy. And that's around accessible street space. And I think in 2020, as we've had to move our social activities outdoor, we've rediscovered the street in many places as a place of communal activities, which is great to see, much greener places with planting boxes, tables outside, which is almost to sort of recreate the idea of what a city is for, which is to foster these kind of networks and connections and unplanned things. So I'm hopeful that, that, that that's a lesson from the past when cities were their street. The street was, was another very, very important public space. So I think the past is full of ideas that cities often overlook and forget as they move forward to sort of bright, shiny new futures, which has kind of been a, a feature of modern urbanisation. And really, it's that's the soul of the city. And every time cities have tried to sort of reform themselves and impose a kind of rational order from above, they've kind of lost that. And that's that's the case, maybe going back to heavily designed ancient cities in the Greek world, or to Luca Borsier in the, the modernist movement of trying to sort of create perfect idealized cities. We've always had this sort of ambiguous, difficult relation with cities that we see them as places of economic, spectacular economic growth and of the development of new ideas very, very quickly, but almost that we don't trust them, that we feel they're going to spin out of control and we've, we can make them even better by planning more. And I think this, the history of urbanization is often the history of the unexpected and of incremental growth. One of my examples I use in the book is a city like Tokyo, which was almost completely destroyed after the Second World War. But it was the space that was left in between where there was planning. A lot was left to local communities to build the city up incrementally, which has created a city of mixed use, of a kind of a habitable city that's kind of grown over a very short space of time from kind of rubble to virtual slum as the city was rebuilt to a hypermodern, very successful city. You know, I find those examples from history important and that's not to ignore the hearts of cities they have a sacred aspect to them which goes right back to the very beginnings of cities however we express that sacredness whether it's in temples or cathedrals or governmental places or public squares cities work best when they retain that idea of sacred belonging and a city identity with ways that citizens can inhabit but they have to be allowed to evolve and that definitely means giving space for people in between planning and to sort of create city spaces for themselves. So you've mentioned that both in the past and in the present people have been drawn to cities because of the opportunities that they present. In the book you argue that it is mainly knowledge connectivity that presents this opportunity. Uh, can you talk to us about how the histories of urban areas demonstrate this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that idea of cities as a place of knowledge and sharing ideas has been at the heart of modern urbanism in the, in the kind of knowledge economy, that you attract people with ideas and create people to attractive cities. To go back to the very beginning, as it were, to um, the first city in Mesopotamia, which is kind of where our human urban journey begins in a city called Uruk, the time of the first agricultural revolutions and then there's the beginnings of cities and it's in this city that people by bringing people together you have very fast developments for the beginnings of writing kingship 
mathematics, money, and less positive things like slavery and things like that. When you get people together exchanging ideas, cities became these places of very fast change. You know, going back to the earlier question, this is what sparked my interest in cities, that things very, happen very fast in cities. And it's the exchange of people coming from around the Fertile Crescent in the, the end of the Stone Age, coming together from different diverse areas and exchanging knowledge that is built on incrementally. So you get very complex things like the beginning of written forms of communication, which is stunningly hard to, to do, but it's when you have people interacting in close, dense cities that you get very quick exchanges of ideas in new technological developments such as the wheel. So these are stunningly quick advances in a short space of time. And really all cities, I think, whether they're on trade routes or not, will become important and, and successful places because they are places of, of information exchange. To fast forward a few centuries to the 9th century AD, a city like Baghdad was consciously planned and developed as being at the, a crossroads of, of the universe, of the world, because it was the heart of the Islamic empire, very rich and drew trade from what was seen as the, the four corners of the world. But more importantly, it, it drew in knowledge from Central Asia, which was itself a crossroads of the world that took information and exchanged and developed information from India, from China, from all over Asia, from the ancient civilizations that had sort of developed around those sort of crossroads cities of Central Asia, and combined them with knowledge they took from um, Constantinople, from the pay of the Roman Empire and the, the Greek world, to synthesize this knowledge. You have sort of stunning, fast changes in mathematics, geography, astrology, economics, algebra. All these ideas are sort of synthesized in the city as a kind of exchange of ideas as much as it is a trade. And both those things go together. And it starts, you know, Baghdad was connected to China through the Silk Roads of land and water. And you have cities that develop across the Indian Ocean, which are, which are also exchanging knowledges from Buddhism, Hinduism, and feeding them back across these trade routes. So sort of interaction of trade and knowledge is kind of almost at the heart of the book. Both these things go hand in hand. And what makes the city work is being at the center of, of knowledge and getting news and ideas first. You fast forward another few centuries to a city like Amsterdam, which wasn't in a promising place to be at the center of trade routes, but it drew in Jews who were fleeing the Inquisition and cities that had been open like Lisbon were becoming more intolerant and they were finding a home in in Amsterdam, intellectuals from England who are also suffering repression. You get a dynamic mixing of people and a very fast exchange of, of knowledge. So being in, in control of the knowledge meant you're in charge of the trade routes and both could feed into each other. And similarly, Amsterdam leads on to London by being a very sociable city, by having coffee houses, theatres, pleasure gardens, aspects of kind of very modern civil society that was based around leisure and pleasure kind of brings a lot of, of science and scientists and businessmen and craft makers and merchants, long distance traders into very close sociable contact, which makes again London, like as Amsterdam had been before, a great exchanging place of, of knowledge and, and news. And being in control of trade routes means you're in control of knowledge. So you get a circulation of news, new ideas. So I think encountering different cities from five or 6,000 years ago to the present day, really what you have is a city as a place of knowledge exchanges as much as it is of good. And that brings us forward to the, the present day, really, that, that cities feast on knowledge and data more than they do on physical commodities. And that's, that is an echo from the past. It, it's the combination of ideas and, and creativity and, um, and finding spaces for those people to interact, whether it's the kind of the, 
the uh, the library at Alexandria in the in the, you know 200 uh, BC or whether it's coffee houses in London in the in the late 17th and 18th century or whether it's in kind of hipster hangouts in Shoreditch or or, um, or whether in um, in the 21st century it's cities that provide easy ways for that knowledge to the networks to form and people to collaborate exchange ideas in whatever way those are the cities that have prospered the most. Prior to COVID-19, urban areas were becoming increasingly popular, with two-thirds of humanity predicted to live in cities by 2050. However, as a result of the pandemic, many urban areas have become empty. Uh, do you think the urbanisation trend has been halted as a result of coronavirus? What COVID, the lockdowns, the working from home movement has shown, how city centres have been completely colonised by big business, finance, tech companies, which had in turn kind of made these cities much chicer, cleaner, more fashionable, better restaurants, cafe society and things like that, was a result of this kind of globalising trends and um, a rise of these important hyper-connected global centres. What this has shown, I think, is that the city, the centre of a city is a kind of like a vortex. Once it reaches a crisis, it becomes a sort of dead zone. Those urban areas were quite fragile to begin with, but if you go to any city in the world, you find a kind of dead zone in the middle, a sort of skyscraper zone. So if, if, if COVID sort of halts that, well, it will probably almost certainly will halt. The, the, if you go to these cities, they're very empty zones, these skyscrapers. They don't support a kind of living ecology of a city. So what we're talking about, when we're talking about people leaving the city, we're talking about people leaving the centre of these bits. I'm not quite sure where people are going to go if they leave the city. There was a thing in the newspaper I saw today about the best seaside towns to go to. I mean, clearly, not everyone can do that. Otherwise, parts of Cornwall are going to become as big as London, if, if everyone could do that. We're only talking about a few very rich people. So we've got to be careful when we talk about cities as we're falling into the trap, almost as seeing them, following the propaganda of the last 30 years or so, of seeing them as just places of the enactment of high finance and very rich people. So a lot of rich people won't be able to leave the city. And in fact, in large parts of Asia and Africa, that the amount of people fleeing rural, rural poverty and moving to the city ain't going to stop. You know, that's going to be a fact of life. And that's going to be a fact of life for us as a species. In my mind, we are going to continue to be urban for one very, very important reason, which is that climate change will be a bigger threat to our survival than, than, than COVID-19. And in fact, living in densely populated urban areas is a way of mitigating climate change and in part halting it. Densely packed cities are places that are more energy efficient, less car reliant. If we live in more compact ways, we take pressure off very important biodiverse hotspots in the world which are being encroached on by cities. So the idea of the urban idea of living at density with a mix of services nearby, having the services that you need walkable or accessible by public transport is an urban ideal. Where we do that is going to change, I think, if city centres become depopulated. What was interesting to me writing the book, that often the most important, interesting parts of modern cities aren't the centre, which are very sanitised, that if you want to go to us, if you're a true urbanist and you want to discover a city, often it's going to outside the city centre into the suburb. I think they're going to remain, you know, even if home working changes. I think there's a, there's a very pressing need for us to, to live like that, to reinvent the city where we can. And that's often outside those kind of very exclusive central urban areas. I think reading about the history of urbanisation or understanding it and what's the, the pleasures of city living, of, of living in places where you can walk and enjoy street life and shop and eat and, uh, and, and access those kind of services it can happen if we live at greater densities 
other than in the city centre, which I kind of think should be the biggest kind of problem facing us, is how to re-establish urban life more widely in metropolitan areas rather than being fixated on, on city centres. So cities will, will change it and we'll, I think we'll have, you know, we will have to stop worrying about commuting and, and office space in city centres and look and think more clearly that they are places that are inhabited by people and need to be inhabited by people. And that's not just reserved for the, the, the shimmering, gleaming skyscraper central bit, but all parts of the city have to interact as a kind of ecology, a human ecology within cities. And we have to find a way to make them better places to live in and more sustainable places to live. So speaking of ecology, something slightly different that I'd love to discuss is the relationship that our modern cities have with biodiversity. While the ecological footprints of cities such as London are much larger than the actual land they occupy, they also sustain unique ecological systems. Can you talk about this hidden ecology? I think historically there was a tendency to see the city as a completely human space, a space that kind of destroyed nature and created a completely artificial man-made space and you know the people who wrote about urban life talked about this dark division that we were kind of creating a world drained of of animal life and I think I mean that's certainly true of industrial cities that were very by their nature were very destructive of of natural resources and now there's a really interesting kind of movement or sensibility that develops after the second world war and it comes from Berlin, which was, as we all know, very, very heavily bombed and destroyed. In the rubble, ecologists found that seeds that had long remained dormant and weren't expected to be part of the city were flourishing in these bomb sites. And so sites that had been damaged and remained damaged for a long time became incredibly vital bio and, and, and sort of surprisingly biodiverse. And that became a kind of a feature of other cities during deindustrialization. that former factories and warehouses and industrial sites suddenly sprouted with life. And I approach this in the book by talking about quite amazing delight we take in finding animal, urban um, animal dwellers. Places like New York have become the most densely populated places for peregrine falcons. What ecologists have noticed is a very fast kind of evolution of animal behavior within cities and animal um, body shape and size. Uh, how they uh, repopulate cities. So we've come to look at cities not as a kind of dis necessary destructive of all nature, but as supporting very vital ecology. So London has a vast amount of biodiversity within it. It's a very green city. It has a, a big canopy of tree cover, large parks. Cities like New York amazingly has more species in it than Yellowstone Park. Um, and all these were, people find very surprising that, um, that what we've been taught was a, a dead place for nature is actually teams of nature. So all these kind of awaken us to the, the fact that between the gaps, whether it's a gap of a railway or a roadside or an abandoned building lot or a crack in the pavement, there is these, this life that sort of spills out that is becoming to be seen as a vital part of the city's future. So when I was writing this book, I was kind of thinking, what's more important to cities? People talk a lot about smart cities, ubiquitous technology, surveillance. Um, I, I went to Songdo in, um, in South Korea, which is supposed to be the kind of the, the sort of the ultimate smart city. But what I was more impressed about it was actually there was quite a lot of plants growing through the concrete. It was the least smart city I'd ever seen, you know, it was the least smart smart city I'd ever seen, <laughs> that there was, um, there was a kind of nature that was growing through it. But I was more, what, what I was more interested as, as I was writing the book, I thought I'd be writing more about 
these great technologies that would reshape city life. And I actually found them much less interesting in the way that cities have to use green infrastructure as a mitigation against climate change. So trees in cities becoming incredibly important. And there's a great tree planting movement, not because they look nice and they're nice to look at on which they are, but because they, uh, they cool the city and uh, remove rainwater. We're not doing it to, to make cities greener and nicer in the first instance. We're doing it because we have to. And that's become a really big movement around the world of a kind of almost a kind of rewilding of certain parts of the city as a way that we can mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Millions of people are moving to the city, but their footprint is growing faster than their population. So, so by 2030, current trends. The urban growth from the beginning of this century to 2030 will cover the, an area of the land of South Africa, right? It's huge. It's very fast sprawling. And it's not just that the fact that they're growing, it's the humans tend to like the same places as, as the, our most important biodiversity, so deltas, estuaries, rainforests, things like that. So we're spilling into and causing mass extinction. Urbanisation is a cause of mass extinction. In this kind of effort to, to plant trees and, you know, increase water and purify rivers, what it hopefully kind of teaches us is that cities can kind of coexist with nature if urbanization is, is done right and it can provide a haven for some species it can preserve a species of plants and trees that are otherwise being destroyed in a remorseless process of urbanization and it benefits the city and so stories about animals and plants thriving in the cities does sort of change our view of what cities are and how they can they can adapt in the in the 21st century and i you see that in lots of cities. You see it in Berlin, you see it in Singapore, where there's a huge amount of biodiversity, a, a, a move to kind of create much more green space in a very contained space. And you do that through roof gardens, you do it, you find you find room for nature in a very densely packed urban environment. And it helps, you know, if we're ever locked down again, well, you know, which is highly likely, if we're ever locked down again in cities, it's very, very nice if you can't escape to the countryside to have an aspect of the countryside in your city, on your doorstep, by your side of your canal or river, in unexpected sort of wild places in the city. So it, it helps. It helps our mental health as well as our physical health and the health of the city generally. Today's urban areas are increasingly growing in size, and in the past few decades, we have seen the rise of the megacity, those that contain populations totaling over 10 million people. What challenges, I mean, other than COVID-19, are these cities facing, and what challenges do you think they'll face in the future? the sprawl will ultimately undermine the city because it won't be able to sustain itself as it kind of crashes into its its hinterland before long supply chains and um, global uh, movement of foodstuffs cities depended on its hinterland and maybe we should think more prize the hinterland of a city a bit more as being the city's life support system so i think we're seeing cities that are under serious threat of, of rising seawaters in the 21st century bigger storms we, we see the effects of that wildfires are all threatening the quality of urban life and, also, and ultimately the main cause and destruction of cities hasn't been human beings, it's been the inability of cities to support themselves within their environment. That's what has you know, destroyed the cities of Central America and Mesopotamia in the past has been, has been climate change and that will affect our ability to live in cities in the future. So cities are facing a much greater threat existential threat from climate change than from anything else. So we've explored the ways they can try and mitigate them and live better with their environment. But I'd say, you know, in terms of, of danger, sprawl is, is, the, is the kind of cardinal sin of the 21st century. It's not just 
kind of in your in your back garden as, as villages get sort of chewed up into the city. I think it's in places in, in, in Africa and in Asia where there's a kind of very swift destruction of very fragile and irreplaceable ecosystems, which we will find to our cost that the city depends upon and can't encroach upon. And that's, you know, the, the kind of the peripheral zone, the peri-urban areas of cities are where a lot of the world's dangers come from in terms of climate change, but also in sort of zoonotic diseases come from the increasing interaction of human beings on the periphery with wildlife that had pre previously been untouched. So urbanisation is, is very, very dangerous to these species and ultimately they'll, that problem will re rebound back to us and we're definitely seeing that. So I'd say without a doubt, you know, we, cities have, have been threatened by all kinds of human threats for a long time, whether it's bombers or, or nuclear weapons or terrorism but ultimately the you know cities have survived all that but they don't do not survive climate change we're finding ways you know surprising ways as i said to, to try and interact with nature that's got to happen a lot quicker and a lot deeper and that's why we've got to reconceive the city as an ecology cities are strikingly successful at, in bringing people out of poverty there's been a big movement away in the early 1990s some 40 percent of the global population was dependent on out and working in agriculture now it's more it's under 30 percent it's falling fast um, so people are driven to the city then as you say there, there's an explosive growth in in mega cities the city i visited uh, lagos you can see how fast it's growing how fast it's going into its hinterland it's it's the fastest growing mega city in the world not probably not the fastest growing city there are other cities but it's following a trend of very fast urbanization in Africa and it's it's su suggested that current trends by the end of this century will be a city of 80 million people which is just stunning at the moment it's 25 million it was 250,000 in the 1950s so we're talking about a, a stunning growth now in a lot of these cities all cities throughout history have, have been places of, of great possibility with people going to escape seek a better life but they've been places of terrible obvious misery and privation and destruction of, of human communities and things like that. But ultimately, throughout history, if we're talking about the, the Manchester that Engels visited in the 1840s or lived in in the 1840s and wrote about, or we're talking about a modern megacity, the, the life outcomes for the children of people who move to cities tend to be better. There tend to be better opportunities for, for education, tends to be better um, health care. So if you can endure the misery of, of migrating to a city and surviving in it, which is very, very hard, your, your life can be better if you can, if you can survive. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a whole range of figures and, and, and measures in which we can see that city life does benefit people. In China, where there's been the biggest urban migration in, in human history, people's um, lifespans have increased dramatically by becoming urbanised, and especially in comparison to people who live in the countryside. So there's a great possibility of, of, of moving to the city. Um, but it's a, it is, it's a tough life. A lot of city dwellers in these fast-growing urban areas rely on the, um, the DIY economy. They, they live you know, off the books in um, uh, unregulated um, entrepreneurial kind of activities. That's the vast majority of urbanites supplying and you know, almost kind of find employment in, in, in coping with mega city life, right? Um, which is a very, very important part of um, a fast-growing city's economy and always have been throughout history. Um, the threat uh, to, to city dwellers is not taking people who move to cities and their lifestyles seriously enough and excluding them from, the, from, from cities. We have a kind of, you know, we could have a situation where there's a kind of 
camp around the kind of the gleaming modern city-state of, of poverty and misery. Um, cities that have worked best are the ones, that, as I was talking before about Tokyo, that were able to incorporate the poorer areas of cities into, into the main city are ones that work best. So the cities will fa face mortal threats if they do not find a way of uh, integrating people who live you know, very marginal lives and in the marginal economy into the, into the city. So in a city like Lagos, a lot of the, the, the um, energy comes from street-level, unorganized parts of the economy. There's, there's, a, um, um, there's a very dynamic computer village that came out of a kind of typewriting repair district that is now has a, a multi-billion dollar turnover, and that comes from street level. The government keep trying to regulate it and move it into sort of business parks, which would kind of kill its creativity and its competitive edge. Um, there's a, a Nigerian hip hop came from the street, Ni uh, Nollywood rather, the, um, the, the Nigerian film industry, which is one of the biggest in the world, was a kind of DIY, you know, self-starting thing from the, from the um, dist sort of outlying districts of, of Lagos. So the cities uh, can, harness that kind of energy or at least give people a kind of um, ownership or belonging in the city whether it's by integrating through public transport which the city of Medellin in Colombia is a famous example of integrating the poorer areas of, in a very dysfunctional murderous city where you know, the city of Pablo Escobar and uh, a narcotic um, uh, center of the narcotic drug gangs cartels came from is now a, you know a reasonably well-integrated city and a kind of poster boy for, for modern urbanism. Um, but the danger is not seeing those as advantages for a city, that there is a lot of kind of, you know, there's a big pool of people that are potentially very, you know, very important for an urban economy when they get excluded or, or a city, you know, like Lagos, I keep using it as an example, but it, it, it is a sort of emblematic of a lot of other cities that they want to emulate uh, a Shenzhen or a Shanghai and become gleaming, good-looking cities that, that look like global players. The, often the poor are the people, the marginalised are the people who suffer the most. So as I see it, if we, you know, billions of people become urban dwellers, especially in continents like Africa, which are urbanising at a kind of astonishing rate, unless we find, unless what those, when I say we, I don't mean we, I think uh, I'm talking about us as a species, but I think it's up to those cities to to, to, to do it for themselves is to, to, to look at the history of urbanization and see that your assets are the people um, and it's not uh, again going back to skyscrapers it's not the kind of the look of a city it's kind of gleaming feel that makes it long-term successful it's the way that it does become a, an ecology you know a, 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 a self-supporting system where all aspects of the city can kind of connect together in whatever way without imposing again to go back to the beginning almost without imposing this kind of artificial order on top of it to sort of fast track your way to a kind of good looking urbanization. It's to, to, to try and, and do these things incrementally that, that people, you know, who are m migrants from the countryside who are, who are trying to make a, a living for themselves and their families, however they do it and however, you know, hard that life is, as long as they're sort of part of the city in some way or another then that becomes, you know, again in unexpected ways like Nigerian hip hop or, or Nollywood that no one kind of saw coming or tried to control or organise if it's allowed to kind of organise itself from, you know, those gaps within the city, the kind of idea of spontaneous growth of incrementalism, then you get very healthy cities. Um, but often, and I think this is the, the, the darker side of history that I've tried to highlight, is the, the way to try and 
create the good city first and make people kind of <laughs> become better by being city dwellers. And it's the other way around. The city citizens make their cities. And we've, we've got, to, got to hold on to that idea of urban history. And something I've tried to do by writing it as a history book rather than a book just about now. I think it's a book that connects to now quite a lot, but it's a book that, that draws on, 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 on the history of urban to show, you know, how we can build good cities or how we can avoid the, 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 the more difficult things, how we can kind of try and survive the city in lots of kind of new, you know, unexpected ways and, and you know, using human resourcefulness to, to negotiate this very, very forbidding, unnatural kind of place that human beings are very good at inhabiting cities. We've done it for thousands of years and we're kind of, we're, we're, we've kind of gone from being, a you know, pioneers moving into cities and changing the world to now most of us living in cities. So to go back, you know, again to an earlier question, are we seeing the kind of end of cities because of COVID or, you know, and those kind of threats, then we, we're not because, you know, we, we do inhabit cities well. We do, you know, it has been our sort of controlling force throughout our history. Um, and, um, and, I've, and I think we, we're going to have to, and I think we will because we're good at it. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to find ways to, 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 to inhabit these places. We're, we, we learn we're good at inhabiting kind of places that seem very unnatural to us. We're able to inhabit them well. And I think if you, you go to cities, you know, Mumbai or whatever, you see people thriving and creating, you know, industries at grassroots. And that's the kind of the, 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 the power of a city and the power of the things that it can, it can do for us. Um, so our threat comes, I think, from over-managing cities. And, and we've got to kind of let people, they have to be managed, but there has to be an interaction between management and human activity. And we've got to kind of celebrate what cities have done for us in the past, which I've tried to do, see their darker side, but see how humans can adapt and respond to them. Uh, and that's kind of at the heart of the human experience really over the last 5,000 years. Thanks for everything so far, Ben. Um, just to sort of conclude, what is the main message that you'd like people to take away from reading your book? My, the main message, I guess, would be that sociability is at the heart of cities, that they're social spaces and they should do as much as they can to promote all kinds of, of human activity from occurring rather than creating barriers to it. I think over the last, um, the last part of the 20th century, the car was the biggest killer of urban sociability. We should see that as um, a, a very a big warning lesson to us that cars that cars through cities take away streets from from good interaction and that's that's a kind of microcosm really of of how i see cities and how i would like them to be seen as places primarily of primarily of social engagement and anything that fosters that is to the good um, so we should see them as places where um, where we take pleasure uh, and we find pleasure and we find delight and we find interest um, and and that's a way of inhabiting them, of overmastering them, of finding ways. But however we do it, whether it's by walking and learning about cities, whether it's um, by seeing them as places of of cosmopolitanism and interest and good food, good coffee, all those kind of things. That you know, we we should extend those things that are associated with city centres outwards, uh, and remember that cities are at their heart social spaces, not just spaces to to make money and to be powerful. Uh, on the kind of global, bestriding a kind of global economic stage, we should see them as as places that foster very unique um, forms of uh, of interaction, and um, and and they're surprising, and none of us could predict what those where those things will take us, and that's sort of what the history shows. So yeah, I want people to take away from the book that kind of excitement 
about about cities as kind of un unlikely, mysterious, strange, you know, almost impenetrable places, but nonetheless ones that, you know, have controlled our destiny for a long time and, and will do so to an even greater degree in the centuries to come. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rgs underscore ibg for more updates about geographical talks and news. We'll see you next time.